All right, good morning, NBC. Good morning, good morning. I'm, man, it's so good to see you all here. All right, so we are in the second part of our series called Imago Dei, and, and Imago Dei is what language? Latin. You see, you're just brilliant. You're brilliant people here at this church. Okay, and what does, what does it mean in Latin? Image of God. Okay, so what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking through chapters 1, a little bit we're going to reference to, but we're going to be 1, 3, and 8 in Genesis. If you've got your Bibles, open up to Genesis. If, you, um, ha- if you're following along on the NBC app, the notes are right there, so you can go ahead and uh, take a look at that. Uh, but we're going to go ahead and start off today reading the same, and we're, this is going to be kind of through this whole series. We're really trying to hone in on chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, and the implications we see in just those two verses for all the rest of, uh, well, uh, how the implications of that speak into 2017 and our life and how the rest of Scripture comes up alongside that to fill that out and help us understand what it's saying. So Genesis chapter 1, starting with verse 26 and 27, then we're going to read the verses just following that as well. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image. And remember last week we talked about that that word for image is, is selim, which is another word for like a shadow or shade of a, of a primary object. Let us make mankind in our image, and our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that is fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and the birds of the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning on the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. When we read that, and when we see what God's doing in that passage, um, that speaks volumes into our everyday life. Even though we're like, again, we're in 2017, so far removed from this passage, it has incredible, profound impact on our decisions every day of our life. Most notably, and you can't escape Genesis chapter 1 without getting into the ecology and the environment, the environmental conversation that we see within this passage. We're going to be looking at ecology, and ecology is this compound Greek word that comes from oikos. The echo is kind of comes from oikos, which means household, and then the, the logi is logia, which means the study of. And so basically, ecology is the study of our earthly household. It's, it's like trying to figure out the place that we live in, our household here, the study of it, to understand it. And what I want to propose today that I see from, from Bible is truly this, that it is Scripture that provides the best approach to understanding our ecology. Oh, it's Scripture that is best to help us understand our earthly household and humanity's relationship to it. And so if you're someone who's like, okay, here's environmentalist over here, and here is theologian over here, these guys do not play well together. Okay, we don't let them hang out with each other because they're going to fight. These guys are over here on one side of the argument. The theologians are on the opposite end of the argument. If you thought that Christianity and ecology just don't mix, you're not alone. And it's probably, and you may not know this, but it's probably from a dude named Lynn. This guy, is, his name was Lynn White. Actually, he has the, Lynn White has the problem with the fact that all of this 
that I'm proposing right here rests on Imago Dei, which again is the understanding that we are created in the image of God and that speaks into our other decisions. So here's Lynn White. Lynn White is a guy who um, is, was a, he's uh, a Princeton, was a Princeton prof. He um, studied medieval history and, and literature. And his big thing was this. He wrote a page in uh, paper in 1967 that actually set the table. It's a seminal work that set the table for environmentalism and the divide between environmentalism and Christianity. And he says this, Lynn White says, Christian theology leads naturally to the exploitation of nature. And, and, he, and he cites examples from Genesis. Actually, the passage that we just read, the fact that the Bible says that humans rule over, that they're supposed to be in rulership over the creation underneath them, that that, abs- that leads itself to Christians being the leaders of exploitation. That, and, and he said, it's not just Christians. You could be an atheist and still poisoned by the reality of Christianity because Christianity has communicated this ridiculous concept of Imago Dei, that we're creating the image of God. And for some reason, humans are more valuable than the rest of creation. And if you believe that, whether you're a Christian or not, it's probably because you've been poisoned by Christian theology. Lynn White says, there's no way Christianity can be green. Now, he's a professor, okay? On the flip side of the coin, you have some practitioners, like current modern-day uh, practitioners like this guy, Stuart Pym. Stuart is, um, he's an echo freak. He's one of those guys that goes and, like, travels around the world to try to uh, save species that are going out of, like, that are going to be extinct. He flew down to South America, and there was all these drug lords who owned, uh, who were operating all of this real estate and property, and they were, they were cutting down all these trees and deforesting the whole area. Stewart's like, that's really bad for the environment. That's bad for the ecology. And it's actually killing off species that are only found there. We got to stop these drug lords. But you can't just tell a drug lord, you know what, please stop. Please, please stop. I said, please. You can't do that. So what, they, what he did was he goes and he raises a bunch of money and he pays off the drug lords so that he could like pay them off so they stop deforesting that area. They've got the money. They don't need to, to utilize all the lumber now. And so they, they stop the deforestation. And New York Times interviewed him about it because they know this guy is he's, he's crazy big. He, he's actually um, the, he is the head of the conservation ecology department at Duke University. He's a scientist. He won the Heineken Award, which is not an award for how much imported beer you can drink. But it's, it's actually the Heineken Award is like the Nobel Prize of environmental ecology and conservation. And so New York Times like loves this guy. He's like, tell us about this. And he's like, yeah, you know, I paid off the drug lords. I may burn in hell for it, but it was the right thing to do. And they keep on talking to him. As they get down to the end of the, the article, they say, oh, they have a really weird question. I don't know why they asked this, but they said, are you religious? And he says this. He says, yeah, absolutely. I'm a believing Christian. God so loved the cosmos that he gave his only son. That's an injunction from St. John. To me, this says that Christians have an obligation to look after the world. This is called stewardship. We cannot pointlessly drive species to extinction and destroy forests and oceans. When we do that, we're destroying God's creation. Okay, there's this other guy named Joel, Joel Salatin. He's an an American that's flown all around the world to talk about his unorthodox approach to farming. Unorthodox because it's not within the realm of farming that is for maximizing output. Like, okay, we need a, a lot of eggs, we need a lot of meats, let's go ahead and just like do whatever we can to up our quantities so we have a higher profit margin. Instead, he does weird stuff like this. He, and he's not like, um, he, he's not uh, at all 
in any type of way, like uh, someone who's just like, we, we shouldn't have animals for food. He raises animals for food, but he does it radically differently. And what he does is he observes the environment and says, how do these animals naturally operate in the environment? And then let's come alongside that. He says it's because God created them a certain way. We should probably pay attention to how God pulled this off. And so what, what he has is he has all the cows in one area that's penned off, and they, they eat all the grass, and they poop, and they eat all the grass, and they poop. And then the next day, they go ahead and move those electric fences over. And so these cows are all free roaming and stuff, and now they're eating a whole new section of grass. Behind them, they bring in the chickens, because the chickens like to peck poop. And so they're pecking the poop. And when they're pecking the poop, they're spreading it out. And all of a sudden, you don't have to use fertilizer for those fields. The fertilizer has been naturally moved out by the chickens. Okay? That leads, that yields a massive um, hay crop um, yield that, that's actually a benefit there. The process of doing this, the fact that they're not confining the cows means that they don't have to use hormones in order and, and antibiotics to up their health and, and make them more productive. They naturally are more productive because of it, and they taste better, and there's a lower count of E. coli in the food that this guy puts out to the market. So Joel is helping less poop to be on the plate of people. That's a good thing. And it tastes better Less poop always tastes better. It tastes better and it's less toxic. On top of that, the chickens aren't confined to things where they're out of stress pecking each other to death just to produce more eggs. He calls this forgiveness farming. And he says that when we walk in step with the creator, we actually have a better output that's healthier and better for humans. He says this. He said to New York Times uh, that was interviewing him, he can see, uh, they were writing about him, and they said that he concedes that his approach is way too Christian for most liberals and way too environmentalist for most conservatives. So who's right? Is Lynn right or are these practitioners right? Is, is the image of God, that notion that we see in Scripture, the poison of our, of our humanity, or it is, is it the actual motivation? Because Stuart and Joel are not operating in spite of their faith, this way that they are, that's being looked at as, as like, this is revolutionary. It is because of the Scripture, it is because of the Bible, it's because of their faith that they're actually taking these proactive steps which is why I absolutely believe that Scripture provides the best approach to our understanding of our earthly household and humanity's relationship to it. Here's why. First off, Scripture declares that our, for us to view our environment as good. Now, I'm going to be talking about this both from the angle of speaking to an environmentalist and to a, a theologian, and I'm going to use theologian very loosely, basically describing anyone studying or pursuing God as a disciple, an environmentalist using that very loosely as someone who's exclusively trying to protect the earthly household that we find ourselves born in. But that the reality is, is that ecology needs theology. And theology, if we're going to be proper disciples, needs to have a redeemed biblical view of ecology. We see that. So to the environmentalist, looking at, at, at nature as good is an important thing because this tells us why your work matters. It tells us why your work matters and even why the extinction of species is a bad thing. Here's why. If you look through the beginning of, of the very first page on any of your Bibles, after every section of what God does pre-humans, okay, so all, so all of a sudden there's light, and God says it's what? Good. And all of a sudden, there, there's like, there's, there's all, there's, 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 um, there's, there's fish in the sea. God says it's what? He goes in, he has land masses, and God calls them 
vegetation. And God says there, no, he doesn't say that. He says that they're this. He says that they're tov, which means good. But that's what he says, is everyone, there's tov all over all of this. Every one of these steps, this is tov, tov, tov. And guess what? It's tov pre the creation of mankind. So this tells the environmentalists, your work is good. You know, you're going to run into people who say, look, we should be able to do whatever we want with our environment. It's, it's just ours. And, and, the, and, the, and you might say, no, we should protect our species. We should protect the species of all these animals. Why? Because if we're going to flow with Dar the Darwinian thought, I mean, the reason that we're here today is because other species went extinct. The extinction of species is a good thing. We're on the top of the food chain because of it if you're gonna roll with that thought. To which, if you're an environmentalist, you might say, well, yeah, but there's, did you watch The Lion King? There is a circle of life, okay? If, if you get rid of this one species, that's eventually going to impact me negatively. Well, that's a kind of a selfish approach. The only thing, reason you care about these species is because it's gonna slightly impact you one way or the other. There's a better way to look at it. If scripture is true, which it is, then God declared it good that creation is intrinsically good simply because he is good and he created it, which means that you have an elevated reason for protecting a species. You're protecting a species because God made it and God says that's good. So that means that this, if you're like trying to save a tree, okay, you're not trying to save a tree just because of the tree's sake. I was talking with uh, my friend Jason King about this before the service. You're not just trying to like, I'm just trying to save this tree. Because if you do that, let's say you succeed. One day, guess what happens to the tree? It's dead. Is your, is all, and then all of a sudden, the thing that you were, you're putting all your life into and worshiping is dead. But if you're, if you're worshiping the creator of the tree because he's good and he's made it good, you're protecting this tree, and that's a good thing. And one day, that tree will die, but your work still matters. That's to the environmentalist, to the theologian. We're able to see that the environment is more than mere expendable resource. Okay, again, God said it was good before humans could mine it. It actively, intrinsically praises God. So whenever we go outside, when we see trees and we see fields, we're not just looking at like products like, yes, this is for my food. That's true. But it's more than that. And Psalm 96 tells us that it's more than that. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant. Jubilant, right? I was totally messing that up at 8 a.m. Jubilant and everything in them. Let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord for he comes, he comes to judge the earth. I have never driven down a road in our area and have looked at fields and said, look at those jubilant fields. Or, or walked into like a forest, go, go down to McKinley Woods, like look, they're singing the praises of God. I don't do that. The reason I don't do that is because I don't have a biblical view of creation. God has said this stuff is an arrow pointer to me. The heavens declare the glories of God. They are good. But not only does Scripture declare that we should view our environment as good, Scripture declares that we should view our environment as bad. Something went sideways. It, you can look at any natural disaster, whether it's, it's a typhoon, you know, a hurricane, hurricanes, earthquakes, disease, cancer. All of these are in the environment. Ecologically, we see things destroying one another or destroying themselves. There's something in this good creation that has clearly gone bad. And again, you're going to see environmentalists debate other people who are against them saying, look, this is a human problem. It's, it's humanity's problem that we see 
all the problems that we're seeing ecologically. And you'll have people who push back. No, it's not my fault. This is not a human problem. It's natural. Here's where the environmentalists need to understand. You are absolutely right, but on a much bigger level than you thought. Global decay does, in fact, have a human source, but it's bigger than the source you think. Look at chapter 3 of Genesis. Jump on over to there. In chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, God is talking to Adam and he says, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree to which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. He says this, cursed is humanity. No, he doesn't say that. Cursed is your family, Adam and Eve. He doesn't say that. God says, because of this decision to rebel, cursed is the ground. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and dust you will return. The environmentalists are right that there's a human source to this, but it's much bigger than most environmentalists would be willing to concede until they come to Scripture and realize, no, it's actually much bigger. Now, to the theologian, this is important too for us to understand because we have a responsibility to that. We, ha- we actually have a response, a right response to the fall and the curse is owning the poison of sin and the privilege of creation care, recognizing whose side God is on. Jump on over to Genesis chapter 8. Now, this is something that you may not walk with me on. You may not agree with what I'm about to say here, so buckle up. You have Noah in chapter 8, right? Noah, there's this global catastrophe. What, what is the global catastrophe? The flood. And why did the flood happen? God, God caused the flood to happen. Why did God cause it? Yeah, the wickedness, the sin of humanity. So God hits this reset button on, on everything and says, okay, this family is going to be the reset button for all of civilization, right? The water uh, recedes. The ark is on Mount Ararat. Everyone's stoked because they're no longer like tossing and turning like the weeks in the past at the, on, the, on this massive flood. And they walk out and they see vegetation for the first time. Noah sets up a, a, uh, a altar to God and he sacrifices. And this is what God says right after that. This is, check this out. Verse 21 of, of chapter eight. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, never again will I, and this is the cool thing about this, what he's about to say. This is what's often called the Noahic covenant. And, and covenants are all throughout the Bible between God and mankind and it is intended to be this long-standing protection for humanity or to save humanity between us and God and it's, it's amazing promises. When you get a promise from God, it's big. That's the Noahic, Noahic covenant, covenant. Verse 21, the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground. This, this is a covenant not between God and Noah, God and humanity, This is a covenant between God and the ground. Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination in the human heart is evil from childhood, and never again will I destroy all the living creatures as I have done. So here's the thing. What we see is we see God saying, this is something that I'm never going to do on a global scale like this. And so what, as Christians, what we do is we can own the poison of sin. We can own it. We can say, yeah, that's a thing. And that, that, that means that not only have I 
been a part, actively a part of sin, but I've seen it like, I, I've seen the inheritance of sin, that I was sinful from birth, that I'm just always self-absorbed and selfish. And if I look for like pragmatic implications of that, that, you know, spews on how I, I look at everybody and everything that I'm around. But I need to own that. And I actually need to step in and do something that's good. Now you do that when you see that there's a problem. And we may not see that as a problem in our, in our community, but let me just tell you, the community I grew up in, there was evidence of the bad, a lot. This is Los Angeles. I grew up in LA, and I'll tell you, every, you know how like um, kids in Illinois, they'll go to school, or before going to school sometimes, they'll like watch the weather report to see if it's gonna like snow, right? If there's gonna be a big snowfall, because maybe they'll get out of school, right? We didn't do that in LA. But we did sit around and watch the weather report. And it's not because we wanted to see how warm it was going to be that day because it was always the same temperature year-round. Um, but but one of the, the reason that we watched the weather report was because at the end of the weather report, the meteorologist would always tell you the air quality report. And they had a scale. It was going, we went from blue all the way up to red. And I, I was waiting to see if we were going to be on orange level or red level. Because if we're on orange or red, that means that it's too toxic outside to run. And that means that PE is going to be indoors today. You laugh? That was every day. It's like, oh, we don't have to run. Yes! It's an orange day. Thank God for the toxic pollution. That was like, that's what I, I love. Yeah, and even if, if, if I missed it, I walked outside and I would go, yep, it's an orange day. We are going to stay inside today. That was, and that was, again, no one's going to argue that's a man-made problem, right? And no one's going to say that that's a when When Julie, when I was trying to take Julie home to meet my family in California, like honestly, in December, we're like, we're going to introduce her at Christmas time and everything. We land. And as soon as you, from, from Chicago to, to LAX, you land in LAX. And as soon as I'd walk outside, I'd just go outside and go, I'm home. I could taste the air. That's LA. Okay. So here's what I do. Here's what we do as people who are disciples. We recognize God has created something good that we have allowed to go bad, and so we do something about it as Christians. As Christians, we are disciples down to the dirt. And so what we need to do is we actually say, I need to step in. So take a look. What we do is this. Wherever we see the cursed surface, we step in and partner with God to restore, be it drought, downpour, disaster, or disease. As Christians, we don't just idle, sit and say, well, you know what? That, that, that flood came through and hit Shady Oaks probably because it was, it was God's judgment. So we should just step aside and let God finish his work. No. When we see someone with a disease, we don't say, well, let's just let, see if this just goes its course and they die out of it. No, we take them to the doctor and we try to see if a doctor who's been put on earth by God to help heal actually is able to pull that off. We need to understand that Jesus operated this way. Jesus, who is God, he's the God-man. He is divinely in control and angry at the effects of sin simultaneously. In John chapter 8, he talks about how he is God. He uses the I am statement. I am God. I am before Abraham. And so he's communicating his divine power, okay? And his divine place and, and position within the, within the Trinity. And, and all of a sudden we get in chapter 11, Jesus' friend Lazarus is dead. And Jesus gets there. And what Jesus does not do is, well, you know, I'm God. And so this was all, this is something that not only did I have planned out, but it's a good thing and it's accomplishing my purposes. It's for your good. So everyone just buck up. It's going to be okay. We don't see Jesus doing that. We know that he's sovereign. We know that God is sovereign. And, and we know that God does work all things to his glory and our good. 
But we see Jesus both sovereign and angry at sin. He is angry and he cries tears of anger at the reality of what he's watching right there before him. That should be our posture as Christians. We both know that God is in control, but we also are angry at the selfish effects of our sin on everyone around us. The late theologian John Stott, before he died, he wrote one final book. He's a British theologian, and he, and he wrote this book, The Radical Disciple. And, you know, I, I imagine when you get to the point where you realize that you only have a, a limited amount of days left in your life, that you start to get more intentional, or you start thinking, I wish I would have spent more time talking about this or saying this, using my platform to communicate. And so this book, The Radical Disciple, I love the tagline, Some Neglected Aspects of Our Calling, speaking directly to Christians. And one of the chapters that he features in this is creation care. And his, he said a majority, he says Britain, the average Britain will throw away, they will throw away their body weight in three months. Now just think about that. Whatever your body weight is, throwing that away every three months and everyone in your family throwing away every three months. And he said, we need to actually recognize that we need to step into creation care as Christians John Piper agrees with this. John Piper says that the reason that we are, as Christians, leaning into environmentalism, or should be, is because it is a way to love our neighbor, which is the third reality that Scripture declares. Environment is good, it's bad, and it's neighborly. Jesus calls us to love our neighbor. Love our neighbor as ourselves. That our reality is not just a relationship between us and God, and, and you know what? It doesn't, forget everyone else. It doesn't matter about them. I'm just, it's me and God, we're all good. He says, no, your relationship between you and God actually impl has implications on everyone else. You love God and you love others and you love your neighbor as yourself. And so this idea of being neighborly is something that is key to scripture's calling on us and directly speaks to an environmentalist. Environmentalist needs to know that there is a reason why we do these things. Jesus calls us to love our neighbor. Even if I don't know them, even if I don't care for them, even if they're my enemy that I'm called to love them, which means that humans can actually, if they have Jesus's mindset, make a significant difference. To the theologian, it reminds us that obeying Christ's command to love our neighbor includes the earth they reside in. Okay, here's a weird passage, Deuteronomy 20, verse 19. It's a war passage, and, and it's, it's God's desire for people to operate in war differently. And you know, the, the typical thing is you go into a, a town and you, you, you kill everyone off and you just, just you scorch and burn, right? You destroy everything. You cut down the trees, you cut down all the resources so that everyone can look at the pockmark, the devastation, the crater of what you've caused and think that you're awesome. And God's instruction is when you besiege a city a long time to make your war against it in order to capture it, you shall not destroy its trees by swinging the axe against them. Go inside, take that axe, kill a bunch of people, but don't leave the trees, okay? The trees. And, and specifically, he's talking about fruit trees. Why? Because these trees are a down payment for the next generation. Whether you occupy the city or someone else does, this is something that is an ongoing good. If you're going to love your neighbor as yourself, including your enemy, you operate differently. Now, here's my problem. I am somebody who absolutely loves nature. Like, I'm a I love being outside. It started when I was a kid. That's me on the far right, my brother Josh. That's my brother Josh and I today. We love backpacking. We love climbing. We love bouldering. 
So I take my family on these crazy trips where we get to do some fun stuff. Each of my kids, when they turn 13, I want to take them to a national park because I want them to see the beauty that God has crafted. And these national parks, established by the son of a Scottish preacher, John Muir, were a place to be a cathedral of God's glory and his his work. And I go to these places, and I am in awe. I am the biggest nature freak out there. And then I come home, and I'm the biggest hypocrite. I will, and you can ask Julie, I will, if we're hiking on a trail in some park, I will go 100 yards out of the way to pick up a piece of trash and throw it away to make sure it's off, you know, so it doesn't disturb the beauty. But I will step over three or four flannels in my living room that I have put on there and my kids have put on there and not even see them, right? There's something about, oh, I love nature. And then I get home like, meh. It's like not a big deal. That's, that's a problem, okay? Here's the problem with that hypocrisy. I do not think that my choices have any impact negatively in the ecology, in the er earthly house that I have been called to. If you're in Manuka, God has called you there. If you're in Braidwood, Wilmington, Ottawa, Morris, God has called you there. He's called you to that environment to help it flourish, right? And, and that's something that he's put on us as a calling. And I don't even, that's off the radar. I go to places that are preserved and I love the beauty there. I come home and I'm like, I'm in the nook. What? Here's the problem with that, that perspective. I am not operating in a way of loving my neighbor. I'm not loving my neighbor as myself or loving loving the earth that resides on them or thinking that their decisions, my, my decisions have an impact on them. Case in point, there's magic that happens on Joanne Drive every week. That's where I live, Joanne Drive, and there's magic that takes place. Every week, I accumulate, my family, we accumulate these massive like white bags of filth and rancid rot, right? And when they were, the kids were babies, it was even worse, but it was nasty. But we'd take these and we would open up a magical plastic bin Have you seen these? Phenomenal. And we'd put the trash in there, and every Monday is, is, roll that thing down to the end of the street, and I would look at it. Sometimes it's overflowing, right, with trash, and I'm like, and I'd get in my truck, and I'd go to work. And when I came home, the lid's down, I open it up, Where'd it go? I don't know. David Blaine is watching with envy. He's like, how did that happen? And it's like, it disappeared. It's gone, and I don't even know where it went. Do you know where your trash goes? No, who cares? It's gone. And there's that feeling of when you're bringing that back up to the garage, you're just like, I feel lighter. I mean, it's like I'm liberated from it. It's amazing. How messed up is that? Because that trash does not David Blaine away. Okay? David Copperfield's got nothing to do with that. What happens is it's taken somewhere. I live in Grundy County. You know where it goes in Grundy County? To Morris, Ashley Road. We have two landfills. We need three. But two years ago, Grundy County voted no. The reason Grundy County voted no is because all of the neighbors around those landfills in Morris complained about the fact that their drinking water has been polluted. The landfills are poisoning the water that they're drinking. And so Grundy County voted, let's not build another landfill. Let's find someone else who can take our trash. So your taxes, if you live in Grundy County, go to pay some other county to take all of my trash. Now, let's be honest. We're going to keep on throwing away trash, right? Right? I mean, come on, we are. So what do we do? As people who are disciples down to the dirt, what if 
what if we recognize that we have small decisions that can make big differences? Um, this is one way, and this is just, just something that I was thinking about, one thing that my family does um, that maybe we can take a step in. This right here is a 24-pack of bottled water. How many of you guys like bottled water? Yeah, whoop, whoop, good stuff. And it's, it's cheap. You get it at Jewel. People at Jewel are nice people. They sell it to you for like two bucks or 250 or something. And it's really good. And so I've got four boys. And so we go through these things. Like this is like, um, we'll go through like uh, almost all of this in a week, okay? When you think about that, like every single week for a school year, just one school year, I would have to buy enough of these to put one on top, one of these cases on top of each other, and for one school year, it would go through the roof. That's just one family, and just wada, right? If I stacked each one of these bottles one on top of each other, it would go up 510 feet. That's just one thing. And this is not all we consume, folks. Now, you could say, yeah, we can recycle those. That's true. Um, I would not bet money on the fact that my kids are at school going, I need to make sure I recycle this right? What if instead of that pillar of stuff that I'm sending to someone else's landfill, what if I like replaced it with something that was more sustainable that I could like actually, you know, this is a small decision. This isn't a woo decision. It's just like, what if we had something that we sent the kids to school with and it came back? Now that is the secondary trick is making sure this comes back, right? <laughs> I got that. But what if we start making small decisions realizing that this is a spiritual decision to love my neighbor as myself. I mean, you, you might sound like an echo freak, but all you are is just like a, you're following Jesus' lead in what he called us to do. We are called to be neighborly and to reduce what we consume. Nobody can, can despair against that as being a good call for us as people. Scripture declares that we should view our environment as good, bad, neighborly, and finally, hopeful hopeful. Because if you're an environmentalist, you need to know that there's good news about the environment, that there's a very bright ecological future for this world, but it's not going to be in your hands. If you were able to convince every single human on planet earth to be as ecologically sound as possible, we would still be in a crater of our own making. This world has been impacted by sin on top of human decision that has directly impacted it. But we have a hopeful future, and the theologian knows this, that it's Jesus is, who is the one who ultimately accomplishes this. This is the hope we have of Scripture that lets us know that creation will one day be restored. I want to read you, as we close here, I want to read you from three passages. One from the Psalms talking about creation, one from Romans 8, and one from Revelation 21 that lets us know the beauty of what we have been given. Psalm 65 we are filled with the good things of your house, of your holy temple. You answer us with awesome and righteous deeds, God our Savior. The hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas who form the mountains by your power. The whole earth is filled with awe and your wonders. Where morning dawns, where evening fades, you call forth songs of joy. You care for this land and you water it. You enrich it abundantly. The streams of God are filled with water to provide people with grain. For so you have ordained it. You drench its furrows and level its ridges. You soften it with showers and bless its crops. The hills are clothed with gladness. The meadows are covered 
with flocks and the valleys are mantled with grain. They shout for joy and sing. Romans 8. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we await eagerly our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things have passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, see, I'm making everything new. Everything. Why? Because grace greater than our past, deeper than our pain, and stronger than our sin was afforded us by Christ. And we have a hope that is beyond what we see right now. So if I had a chance to talk to Lynn White, I would want to say to him, listen, you believe what you believe about Christians because you've run into a bunch of Christians who don't care about the very earth God gave them as a gift. People like me. But it is scripture that actually gives us the best rationale and the most resources to understand our earthly household and our proper response to it. And that stems not in spite of, but because of the fact that God has created us in his image. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have a responsibility and a calling right to your home to help it flourish. We can do that. We can step into that and we can do that for his glory. Amen? Amen. Let's stand for prayer. Lord Jesus, I pray that you equip us to the calling you've given us. Lord, there are so many um, very small, mundane ways that I choose uh, ignorance or just laziness, God, over recognizing that everything that you've given me is for a purpose and is to, to declare your glory. Lord, I pray that you equip us as a church to look at where we live as a place for us to, to be like gardeners and help it flourish, to nurture it, to rule over it. And by to rule, ruling over it, God, we're taking everything that's out of order and we're putting it into order for you and for your glory. That this world will be a better place because of it and oh, this world will see the implications that are not in spite of scripture but directly tied to your calling and will. And when we see that happen, we will give you the thanks and the glory for it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. 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 See you next week.